0: Good morning, John chapter 16, you can be finding in your Bibles as we begin. We'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 1, but this very much is a part 2 of what we saw last week at the end of chapter 15. And you need to remember that we heard Jesus make a distinction in verse 20 last week. What he said was, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And we can hear there, what we wind up recognizing to be Jesus' overall subject in this text. And what ended the last chapter and what he does is he's coming into this one. It's a subject concerning testimony in the world, His testimony to the world. As we read this morning's passage in just a moment, the first 15 verses of this chapter, you might notice that between these and those from last week, what we see Jesus doing is jumping back and forth twice here, between a couple of things. He went last week from the world's reaction to us, in verses 18 to 25, to the Holy Spirit's work of witness, in verses 26 and 27. The world's reaction to us, the Holy Spirit's work of witness. Now, this week, he goes back to the world's reaction to us in verses 1 to 4, and then back again to the Holy Spirit's testimony in verses 5 to 15. You see that back and forth. And what ties those two themes together is this idea that even as he departs the world bodily, he is not leaving this world without a witness, without testimony. And as he speaks about this to his disciples, to the 11 there that day, and therefore, by implication, as he speaks to us, his message to us here is twofold. As regards our work in God's hands as witnesses, you will be opposed and you will not be alone. Let's read the first 15 verses. See if you hear those two themes as we read. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. A twofold message here as regards our service as witnesses, as testimony to God, from God to the world. You will be opposed, and yet you will not be alone. First, you will be opposed. Opposed. Remember verse 21 of, of uh, the chapter before, of chapter 15, the opposition that comes from everything entailed in what Jesus calls there our word and what the world's reaction to that word reveals. It's characterized by opposition. Jesus said last week that the people's persecution at the hands of the world serves a particular purpose from God, it is revelatory. The world's persecuting God's people because of, of its word provides revelation. It proves the righteous judgment of God. And that's very much on topic for what we're seeing in our text again this morning, isn't it? One of the things that I hope that we recognize here is that the word testimony or witness is in fact a great purpose of God in leaving us here. This, is a, this, is a, this goes far in describing God's intentions in saving you to Himself and leaving you here on this planet to provide this testimony, this witness that will be opposed. And my friends, what that means for us is that while our priority as Christians is certainly not one of going around looking for confrontation or opposition, yet neither are we to live in such a way as to make union with Christ that last, best-kept secret about us. Flying under the radar as followers of Christ is not why our Lord has left us here. In fact, what we find here is exactly the opposite. It is our union with Christ that is meant to be put on display as we live in this world. And that is going to receive opposition. It certainly is the expectation that's created at the start of chapter 16 here, isn't it? where Jesus is talking about the very real possibility of death for his sake. What's his main concern here for his people? You notice it's not death. It's apostasy. It's falling away from him. There are worse things than death in this life. And our Lord who loves us is less concerned with the death of his people here than he is with the falling away of his people. He gives his words, his powerful commands and warnings and promises which are effective in his people's lives. He gives those things not to protect us from dying here, but to protect us from the temptation to forsake him. That's what his concern is for these 11. His priority is not unclear at all. And my friends, we need to notice his priority in this context so that it might be our priority as well. Our goal in this life is that we would come to conform our thoughts to the mind of Christ, to think Jesus' thoughts after him. And he gives this to us here in these first four verses in particular in a context that are, that's increasingly similar to our own context today in the 21st century. He warns the eleven. That for them, the main opposition to them is going to come on moral grounds. You see that? Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. And indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. It's such a significant warning for him to give them. That they would be clear about the motives of this opposition. My brothers, he says, in your battle to represent me, you will not be seen to occupy the moral high ground. Your opponents will think that they are the moral ones in this conflict, but he says, fear not. Because what the world has convinced itself of now does not change what the final outcome will be. They will be evidencing by their very opposition to you that they have not known the Father, nor have they Known the Son. This is yet another call for them to trust Him beyond what their eyes are able to see or what their ears are able to hear in the context of that sort of opposition, that moral opposition. For probably the majority of us sitting here this morning who have lived long enough to have been a part of this ride, it's been a very strange and unsettling ride to move into the 21st century as American Christians, hasn't it? We have lived this tremendous moral shift. There was an article that came out last year that made quite a splash. A man named Aaron Wren wrote an article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And he's describing there the American process of secularization that has taken place. What he does there is he divides the timeline into three worlds, this is how he describes it. He describes the positive world up to 1994, and he gives reasons for these dates, as this, the society retained a mostly positive view of Christianity, to be a church-going person was part of being viewed as an upstanding citizen. This up to 1994, the positive world, then shifting, in his words, into what he calls the neutral world, 1994 to 2014, where being a Christian no longer carried with it a privileged status, but neither did it carry a negative social cost. And then what he calls negative world, positive world, neutral world, negative world, from 2014 and to here we are today, where now being known as a Christian is, in fact, a social negative especially in elite America. And Christian morality is a thing to be repudiated and is seen as a threat to public good. Publicly subscribing to Christian morality and ethic brings negative consequences. What's quite astounding about the timeline he's describing is how fast it is progressed. But do you see how Jesus' words here in chapter 16 are so relevant to a time like this that we are now in? And are struggling to get accustomed to. He warns his disciples here that simply being his follower will carry social consequences, sometimes significant ones. And in their case, Jesus knows directly that even death is the end that awaits most of those that he's speaking to. There. Listen, it's in that context that, we, hear that we, we need to ask the question, what is his priority for these 11 who he loves dearly and who is in this particular set of circumstances? What's his priority? His, his priority is that they would stand. Not that they would survive, but that they would stand. Do not fall away. Verse 4, I've told you these things to keep you from being caught off guard when those confrontations come. Remember, then, what I've told you now. We want to remember all the cautions that we looked at last week from 1 Peter as to suffering. We we want to live deliberately enough as Christians that we don't wind up suffering because of sinful behavior. But the call to us here in our time is a clear one, isn't it? We must not, we will not, as God's people, bow to the gods of this world and this age. For them, it was Jewish rejection of the Messiah. It was the polytheism of the Roman world around. For us, it is things like the very real paganism that we see on the rise today. Literal paganism, actual worship of the earth. For us, it is the self-worship that we see today. That would try to locate all creative power and moral judgment in the human mind. We're in a battle against ideologies and worldviews. We're in a battle of religions. And in that world, we are ambassadors of Christ. We have His message to bear, both in word and in practice. And even in a room of this size, he puts us in many different contexts, doesn't he? And yet it's true for every one of us here. This is the reason he has left us here. The reality of the world's opposition is a significant part of the reason that he has us where he has us. We're living out the very description of Christ himself. When Simeon spoke to Mary back in Luke chapter 2, he called Jesus there, Quote, a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is what Jesus was as he came into the world. And that's a good description of the purposes he's giving for us here. And like the first generation of Jewish Christians, whose confrontations obviously didn't take place simply in the privacy of their own homes, but in the context of very public situations and dialogues, So it is with us. We aren't tasked by our Lord with representing him simply in the privacy of our own homes and churches. We are people who are most deeply defined by the words in Christ, are we not? That is our definition. And thus it is inevitably that reality that goes with us everywhere that we go. It must. Because that's who we are. And hence the struggle that he is telling his disciples to prepare for, that these first four verses describe. Jesus warns them of this. He warns us of this. But he tells us something else here as well. And this leads to the second piece that we'll look at this morning and really spend the most time with. He tells us that in this struggle, we are not alone. And we are not alone in meaningful ways. Our work here as walking testimonies of Christ in the world is both fueled by the Holy Spirit at work within us and is accompanied by his own work of testifying to the world outside of us. Look back at chapter 15, verse 26. We've already heard him say there, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, there is a distinction there, isn't there, between two things, and we should be careful to understand the distinction that he's making there. There's the Holy Spirit's uh, witness, verse 26, he will bear witness about me, and then in some kind of a separate way, emphasized, is the witness of the 11, verse 27. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, that's a statement that does apply to you and me. It is relevant to you and me, but only indirectly so. It's directly a word to the eleven, speaking of them and their apostolic role of foundation for the church. And I'm thankful that even in Rob's Sunday school class this morning, that principle came up. It was very helpful. We should be careful there. We don't want to overemphasize the distinction that Jesus is making between the Holy Spirit's work and our work. Because we know, don't we, that that our work as walking testimonies of Christ is fueled by, guided by, inspired by the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. If John 15, five was correct, if apart from Christ we can do nothing, then so apart from the Spirit of Christ at work within us, we can do nothing. We understand that the distinction there in 26 and 27 isn't between work that the Holy Spirit is driving and work that he isn't driving. The distinction is between the Holy Spirit's work that he involves us in and the Spirit's work that he does outside of us. And it's that distinction that is really helpful for us from from verse 4 here in chapter 16 to the end of what we'll see. That's why I went back to that. I want us to see Those two locations of the Spirit's work in verses 4 to 15. You have work that the Spirit works toward the world and work of the Spirit within his people. Work of the Spirit toward the world. This is what we hear described in verses 4 to 11. And it's very interesting how Christ leads into describing this. He says at the end of verse 4, that there's something that he has not discussed with them until now. You notice that? Because up to now he has been with them. He hasn't needed, they haven't needed to hear more about his plans for supporting them when he was not bodily present with them. Verse 5: But now I am going to him who sent me. And he makes a statement that is maybe not what it looks like at first glance. He says, None of you asks me, where are you going? I say that that's not probably what it looks like at first glance, because at the end of chapter 13, that's exactly what Peter asked him. Lord, where are you going? (laughs) So his point is not that they've never said those words. His point is that their concern up to this point has wholly been upon the fact that he is leaving and not upon the implications of where it is he's going. They need to start thinking about what it means that he is going where he's going. And even when Peter asked that question of where he's going in chapter 13, he was saying it, we saw then, to express lament at being separated from Christ. He wasn't trying to understand the implications of Jesus' destination. Now, we've talked at length in the past about the benefits of Christ going away and sending the Spirit. What I want us to notice here this morning is that he says in verse seven, that he will send the Spirit to us, and then he says in verse eight, that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see that? What is the effect of the Spirit's ministry toward the world? Well, it's summed up here with the word convict. It's a word that means here, to bring to light a person's wrongdoing, or to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing. It's a convicting work that, depending on the circumstances, might bring that own person to a realization of the wrong. But whether it does or not, it does prove the wrong in reality. That's the effect of the Holy Spirit and the purpose that he's working toward. To bring this conviction. And in the world, some by God's grace, as God softens hearts and opens minds, some are humbled by that conviction, then they come to him, they're rescued out of the world. But others respond to that conviction in their deadness, with hatred and rejection. Now we hear that, that work of the Spirit's conviction, and certainly there is an extent to which that describes the Holy Spirit's work within unbelievers. Bringing conviction, you can think of his use of of the conscience to convict even. But what we need to notice here is that all of that is spoken of here in the context of the Spirit being sent to his disciples. Again, verse 7, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world. So what we're seeing here in this, we have to notice that the Spirit's work through us is being spoken of as intending to be a convicting presence in the world. You might think of what Paul commands in Ephesians 5.11, where he said to to the Ephesians church, have nothing to do with the fruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And Paul uses there, expose them, the exact same word, when it says expose, that Jesus uses here, that we translate convict. Convicting about what? He names three things there in verse 8, and then he expands on each one in verses 9 to 11. We'll take all of that here together. He convicts the world concerning sin. That's the first one. He says, Because they do not believe me. That is to say, what the Spirit does is he works to reveal the fact that apart from faith in Christ, our sin remains. As he moves to convict the world concerning sin, a world that has rejected the only solution to sin that God has offered. This is the effect. It's a good reminder to us as believers that far above any temporal blessings from Christ that we have experienced is the fact that in Christ we have found freedom from the guilt and consequences of our sin. That is far more precious than gold or silver or any such thing. If we haven't trusted in Christ alone, we are still in our sin. And this is what the Spirit of God convicts the world of. There is a sin and guilt problem that you can't wash off. Distract yourself as much as you want. You cannot escape the knowledge that you have broken the eternal moral laws of God and that judgment awaits. For that sin. This the Spirit brings conviction of. He convicts the world concerning righteousness, it says. And it's the Spirit who does this, verse 10, because Jesus will have gone to the Father. And is seen on earth no longer. In other words, the Spirit is simply continuing the work that Christ has engaged in. To bring this conviction concerning righteousness. How can you be convicted concerning righteousness? Well, you can be convicted concerning your righteousness. What is the righteousness that you would offer to God? You might put the word in self there. They're convicted concerning their self-righteousness, which is in fact worthless in the sight of God. We're told in the Old Testament, aren't we, that our righteousness before the throne, the justifying throne of God, what is it worth? Our righteousness is filthy rags before a perfect and holy God. We have nothing to offer in this sort of self-righteous, self-justifying way. And the Spirit works to bring conviction concerning that. The Spirit convicts the world thirdly concerning judgment. Now this one is a little bit harder to be confident in as far as what is being uh, conveyed here. Is he saying that the Spirit convicts the world concerning the ways it has judged poorly, concerning its poor judgment? Or is he saying that the spirit convicts the world concerning the reality of God's judgment? He gives a little bit of explanation in verse 11, but it doesn't seem to help much with that particular question. And I'll confess to you, I struggle to feel confident as to which one of those is meant. I I would lean toward the second though, Because remember, he's speaking about the world here in terms of of all of this work the Spirit is bringing conviction to. And he says, in explanation here, he says, because the world's ruler is judged. That would seem to explain why he convicts the world concerning God's coming judgment. So if that's true, then what he would be saying here is, if If judgment has already come for the ruler of this world, then the world needs to recognize that that judgment is coming for it as well. It needs a new ruler because its ruler has already been judged. And that judgment then would be coming to all who would follow in the path of the world. Remember, Jesus has told the world in times past here in this gospel, you are following the path of your father. You're following the path of the prince of this world. This is what the Spirit is doing in reference to the unbelieving world. He is bringing conviction. That there is guilt that has to be dealt with. That there is emptiness, selfishness, idolatry in the best that we have to offer to God. That we need a righteousness that we don't have. This is God's testimony to the world. And verse seven sets the context as regards this testimony. The Spirit is helping us, as through us, it brings this conviction. Again, verse seven, it is to your advantage that I go away because if I go, the helper will come to you and when he comes, he will convict in these ways. That's the impact that God's Spirit, who has now come as the, the, the incarnate Son of God has departed, It's the impact of God's spirit on the world as he is at work in us. In other words, we're hearing here about the ways God intends to use us in this world. And I hope that we remember this well when we reach Jesus' prayer for us in chapter 17 that Ryan read for us earlier, where he will say a great deal to us about his sending us into the world, even as the Father has sent him into the world. Do you see how all of this centers around God's work to leave a testimony concerning himself, a judging testimony to the world, and the role that we would play in it? This presents us with some, maybe something of a fearful question. One of those difficult questions that we can tell has implications to it. How am I to participate in this sort of a witness that Christ is describing? You may know that that question has been answered in a great number of ways. Should I bear witness like this? Be used as an instrument of God like this, by taking up arms and conquering nations, subduing and bringing in by the power of the sword, the power of of, uh, of the gun? Maybe I should. Do this. Maybe I should be a witness in this way, like a guy that I knew up in Nebraska a long time ago. He thought the best way to serve as a witness was literally to go up to our college campus up there, pick out a poor soul walking across campus, and then pick up walking beside them. And he would warn them of their sure destination in hell. He would share the gospel with them, Uh, And if asked to stop or to leave, he would refuse to do so. He would not leave their side as they went, at which point at several times he was punched in the face. And he would then come and celebrate that he had been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Maybe that's the way that we participate in this witness. After all, the conviction is uncomfortable for the world. That was uncomfortable for that individual. I would suggest to you here, before we move on, maybe three, I hope, practical considerations that we should have as we're reading this, and as we're hearing ourselves put into this witnessing work of the Spirit. The first one would be that we should notice that we're being called here to follow in Christ's example. That's not insignificant at all, is it, as we think about the question of how? We'll see that a lot more in just a moment in verses 12 to 15. But clearly, this is why we are called, as a church, the body of Christ here on earth, isn't it? So, that seeing the manner in which Jesus lived is a model for us. And what was Christ? Well, certainly he was bold. He stood unflinchingly on the truth. But he was also kind. He was one that brought people uh, in, in, in a hunger in some ways to be near to him. He was gentle with people that he was among. Generally speaking, there were some exceptions to that, where they needed to be. You think of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, was he? Jesus was incredibly kind to him, even as, you notice, his presence led Zacchaeus to a recognition of sin and to life-transforming repentance. But we also have to keep in mind That If we're thinking about the example of Christ, that example has limits for us, doesn't it? We are imitators of Christ in this world, but we are not Christ. He knew who it was that were his sheep. He came to the world with knowledge and authority that we do not possess. Isn't that right? And that has implications as well. So noticing in the right way, the example of Christ, that's one thing for us to consider as we're thinking about this. A second thing to remember is what is said to us right here, which is that the Holy Spirit, who Jesus is promising to us, it's in this context that he is called the helper. We're not alone as these witnesses. We have a helper. And you notice as well, it is he who is accomplishing these things, isn't it? That would suggest we don't have to try to get super creative. We aren't being told to put our heads together and innovate to accomplish this. In fact, what we're being told, what we're being assured of is that as we live out our lives with the Spirit of God at work in us, this is the work that He is going to accomplish. And that leads well to the third consideration I would give you here as to how we approach this witness, which is that... We as Christians are committed to living a whole Bible life. So when we're thinking about the broader implications here of how does Jesus call us to live out our lives as a testimony to God, we must see the entire Bible as our guide to life and godliness. So we let the word of God interpret itself. We temper our potential interpretations and applications of one passage with another passage. We work at every point to have a whole Bible way of thinking and living. So we see a call here to willing sacrifice and suffering. But then we also hear Paul's description of the good Christian life in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Just one other thing that... We could bring to bear. And immediately, those two passages help each other. They help us. Either one of them, without the other, could create a certain mental image in our minds about what our lives ought to be like, couldn't it? And our goal is that our way of life can incorporate all of what God's Word has revealed and instructed. So I hope that those are some things that are helpful to consider as we're understanding how this witness actually works itself out and is put on display in our lives. Now, the last part for us to see here is verses 12 to 15. And we look at this separately because Jesus does shift here. He's still encouraging us with the news that we are not alone in what God is calling us to. But after describing the impact of that on the world out there, and even us in the world out there, now he describes the impact of the Spirit's work in us. Look again at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes. What an interesting name for the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The spirit of truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you all that the father has is mine therefore i said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you if you've been with us in the study of john's gospel do you remember how often we have heard jesus make very clear that in his earthly ministry he was delivering to us what belonged to his father and what had been given to him do you remember that John 7, 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 8, 26, he says, I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And then, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 8, 43, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John 12, 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. John 14.10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. My friends, we've seen it. This has been a repeated emphasis of our Lord, that he is bringing what belongs to his Father. And now we find him using that exact same language to describe the pattern That's found in the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit that he said is going to dwell in them. Work in them. Work out from them. We see it here in verse 14 of our text. In a perfect mirroring of the son's dynamic with the father. He says about the spirit. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Just as Jesus took what was the father's and brought it to us. And what is it that he says is mine? He continues there, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Yet again, we're seeing, aren't we? Perfect union, oneness, cooperation within the triune God in all of God's works. It's very important, I think, that when we read verses 12 to 15, in terms of what's being promised, that we recognize that it applies in a unique way to these 11, to those who will be Christ's apostles, and who will be able to record and explain for those who come after the life and ministry and teaching of Christ. So this does apply to us, but only indirectly. It directly applies to the apostles and what they have brought for us as the foundation of the church, like Ephesians Describes them. And by the way, let me just ask you here. Do you think that the Spirit has failed to finish that task that the Son has given to him? To take all that the Son gave him and declare it to his people? Are there yet things that we, as the children of God, need to hear from the Son of God? That 2,000 years later, the Spirit of God has still not given to his church? May it never be that we would say such a thing. This is exactly what he has done through the ministry of the apostles, through those who then took and completed God's perfect revelation to his people. The completed, closed canon of God's holy word is exactly this. And it's only through the Spirit's ministry of that word that this continues for us today in this indirect way. It's good for us to notice that. It causes us to tremble at God's word, to rejoice at it, and most importantly, to be content with it, to be satisfied. That there is nothing that I need from him to know how to walk and please him and be faithful that he has not given to us. It is so telling, I think, as we're looking at the opening here of chapter 16 that these are the ways that Christ moves to assure and bolster his disciples. The way that he comforts tells us about the concerns he has for them. It tells us about his sense of the real dangers that they were facing, doesn't it? And there are a lot of dangers. We face dangers today. They were facing tremendous dangers in their time. But we do well as we're looking at this and as we're starting to move toward closing. We do well to zoom out a bit and to notice that when Christ here is preparing his disciples for life without his bodily presence, the two ways he assures us here is by, number one, telling us about the Spirit's successful convicting of the world that will succeed And by telling us, secondly, of the Spirit's successful equipping of us to hold fast to the things of Christ. That's how he he prepares them. By assuring them of the Spirit's sure success in the world and in his people. It is so good for us to hear. Because both of those things speak to our greatest struggles of faith in our lives. We struggle in faith. As we live in a world that looks like it's out of control, don't we? We struggle in our faith as we look inward and we see our own sinfulness. And often both of those things, those are the things that drive us to doubt and to discouragement. And it's exactly in those places that the Lord comes and speaks to his disciples as he prepares to leave. This world. He is so good to us in the ways he prepares us here. Because his assurance is that the Spirit of God is working and will succeed. Across that world that looks so out of control today, sinners are coming to know a Savior and being saved forever. And where in the world there is rejection of him, what else have we seen here? Even there, the Spirit is accomplishing the work for which he has been sent. He is accomplishing the work of conviction that will one day bring glory to the holiness and justice of God. And that is a wonderful thing. The Spirit is working successfully across the face of this world. And what's more, he's even doing so in such a way that we would be so honored that he would use us in the work he's doing in this world. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are in fact an instrument of his in his hands for that very purpose. That one of those two things would be the result of people knowing us, being around us. A sense of God's love. A sense of God would be there with us as we go, forcing the kinds of wrestling that Simeon spoke of in Luke chapter 2. The Spirit is taking what belongs to Christ and declaring it to us. And so, my friends, then, is not a great ambition of our lives to be a people who are soaked in the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, isn't it? a sword that pierces to the deepest parts of us. This is what God has left us here to be engaged with and to be used to accomplish. Our Lord has not left us an unclear picture of our purpose or of what we can expect of life in this world. I mean, is the picture unclear here in the first 15 verses of what we as Christians should expect? As believers, we are not naive, then, are we? We must not be. We are not simple-minded in our expectations. But we're also doggedly hopeful and joyful because he has promised us. Both that we will have trouble in this world. And that he has overcome this world. Would you pray with me? Father, we we end our time together here, both with a desire to pray to you and thank you for what you have shown us, for what you've reminded us of. Lord, you know us, and it's so obvious as we come to your word, we read and we see the answers to our deepest fears and struggles and temptations. We thank you, Father, for your reminder this morning that you are accomplishing all your good purposes. No one and nothing can thwart your intentions and your will. Father, I pray for us here this morning that you would use those truths brought back to our mind. You would use it to bring us great comfort and conviction and determination, Lord, cause us to stand faithfully in the places where you have put us as ambassadors of your Son. And help us never to forget the tremendous honor that that position affords. Help us never to forget the great cost that was paid that we might belong to you. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the work of your spirit in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.